Lord, we do thank you that we can study your scriptures. And we do pray, Lord, that as we, uh, we study the book of Joel, that it will be a profitable study for us, that we'll learn about the day of the Lord and all the great doctrines within it. We'll learn about your covenant faithfulness. And we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to think well upon your text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see Eric back. Good to see you. That's right. That's right. Good to see everybody here in their places. We are um, last week, by the way, I was somebody had mentioned that they enjoyed the discussion so much that they wouldn't mind continuing that here this morning. But I do have an uh, introduction to the book of Joel that we will start studying. But I just wanted to put it out there that if anyone has any more questions or comments regarding the doctrine of election that we had just finished up, feel free. Uh, We can take the first few minutes maybe and discuss that if you want. If not, we can get into the book of Joel. But I didn't want to quench any uh, discussion or comments or questions that people may have had. So, um, in fact, one of the people that said it is still out in the parking lot. So (laughs) we may want to hold off. He may have some questions or comments. So, But if anyone has anything, uh, feel free to ask. And again, about the doctrine of election that we had covered. And uh, if anyone, if you, if you don't have anything, I can just keep moving on into the, the book of Joel. I'll just give uh, people a few minutes to get settled. Say, Tom, I know you're just getting to your seat. I had mentioned to everybody that for the first few minutes, we can certainly open to comments and questions about the doctrine of election. And I just wanted to give everybody an opportunity, so as you come in, I just wanted to let you know that. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious. Can someone who's elected not Yeah, um, you know what? Hold on. Let's get that on mic. That's good stuff. Um, where is our mic? Oh, there it is. Thanks, Carly. Okay. Question. Yeah. Can someone who is elected not believe? Yeah, you know, um, ultimately, at the end of the day, no. God will enable them to believe, and he will do it supernaturally. And that's, remember the eye that we covered in Tulip? That's irresistible grace. And uh, one of the passages that just kind of popped in my mind is, do you remember when Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is talking about that there's going to be such trickery in the last days that even the elect, if it were possible, would be deceived? But notice he says, if it were possible. The implication is it's not possible, ultimately, to deceive the elect. And so, yes, for perhaps a portion of time, someone who is of the elect may not believe until the appointed time in their life. But we have to affirm, even from what Baba showed us in Ephesians, that if we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that is something that he will bring about. And so that... um, Do you remember we also discussed two different wills of God, the decretive will versus the moral will? When we're talking about bringing the elect to saving faith, we're really talking about the decretive will, that God will necessarily bring that about. So he is going to overcome their sinfulness and their inability that enable them to believe. And another passage I think suggests that is in John 10, 27, where he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Prior to that, Jesus says, The reason you don't believe is because you're not of my sheep. So the implication is the sheep 
are those who belong to Christ and they're enabled to believe, whereas those who don't belong to him, their sinful nature isn't overcome. But I think from John 10, you see the power of Christ in salvation, that he overcomes the sin nature and he is able to keep them forever as well. Another passage that I think of, Tom, is the um, Acts 13.48 where it says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So if you're, if you're appointed to eternal life, the implication of that text is you will believe. But it also, I think, the implication of that text is if you're not appointed to eternal life, you won't believe. Bob, do you want to comment on that? Well, you can also see cases where God did supernatural things to get the gospel to somebody. Yeah, good point. Like the Ethiopian in Acts, remember? How... Um, Right. That was in Acts, Acts chapter 8. The angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south of the road. And so he ends up speaking to this Ethiopian official who becomes a believer. And you look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So if you just look at this, the command to take the gospel to all the nations, and you also look at individual cases of conversion that were quite supernatural, when you see them, you see God... Uh, bringing his word to all people and um, honestly history is going on because God is still saving more people and adding them to that rule book of heaven and so people living on the earth and filling the earth the command to Noah shows how God is still adding and there are still elect out there. We don't know when that time is. That's very clear. Yeah. When that stops, there'll be people saved during Daniel's 70th week. But that's yes. just seven years. Yep. And then you have an end to it. That's right. And so we don't know. Nobody knows. It's very clear we don't know. But as long as there's elect out there yet to be saved, history will continue to go on. Now, I will be continuing... Next week on this worldview discussion, and I'm adding a slide if we get to it about from Genesis that shows that God promised an inhabitable earth until uh, ultimately the judgment by fire. I'll prove that from Genesis, and it's also a response to the global warming hysteria. (laughs) Okay, global warming is not going to keep the earth from being inhabited so that people will live, because God made a promise to Noah that we'll have summer, winter, and so on. I have that on a slide for next week, and we will show that and prove from the Bible that history will continue to go on and people will be in. Amen. Thank you. Um, see, Tom, one other passage we may all want to turn to is everyone turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 9.19. And this, I think, is a, a really good direct uh, answer to your question, too. Can someone resist coming to faith, even if they're part of the elect. And I think Romans 9.19 really would shoot down that idea. You can tell I'm a pastor, highly trained. I'm looking past Isaiah for Romans. <laughs> so that's... Uh, Isaiah, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Isn't that sad? I know, that was pretty bad. Yeah, keep going. Running my... Oh, yeah, yeah, I've got it here, too. But, yeah, go ahead, Bob. Thank you for reading it. Yeah, that'd be great. Romans 9 and verse 19. Yeah. 
You will say to me then, say to me therefore, why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? So yes, for who can resist his will? Now that question is what we refer to as a rhetorical question. And the obvious answer to it is, well, no one can. So the point of the objection that Paul is raising is if you're one of the vessels prepared for destruction, as he in a, just three verses later describes, well, why would God still find fault? After all, who can resist his will? And so the answer to that is no one can ultimately resist his will. If you're a vessel made for honor, that is salvation, you're going to be brought to salvation. If you're a vessel made for destruction, you'll be allowed to go to destruction. The difference in that, Tom, though, is remember with the vessels prepared for destruction, all God has to do to prepare them is let them be who they are. That's all he has to do. And so the fairness question is answered by what does God do to harden those who are perishing? He lets them be who they are. He leaves them alone. But for the vessels prepared for salvation, he has to go hands-on and I'm using that as a metaphor, he gives them the Spirit who enables them to believe. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So that's the distinction between the elect and the reprobate. With the elect, God is hands-on metaphorically. He has to enable them to believe, whereas the non-elect, he just allows them to be who they are because we're all dead sinners in Adam from the moment of conception. So the point, though, of Romans 9.19 is no one ultimately can resist God's decretive will. And I think that's a good answer to can someone who is elect uh, keep God from enabling them to believe? The answer from that, I think, would be clearly from the Scriptures, no. So does, does that help answer the question, Tom? No. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Does, but it raises okay. Oops, sorry, we don't have the mic. Yeah, um, I, I don't know where it is. There we go. Oh, Carly, thank you. I answer that question. Okay, I answer that question no, because it just okay. as you talk, other questions come to my sure. mind. But I think of the disciples being admonished by the Lord uh, the disciples were being admonished by the Lord when they were trying to keep the children away from him yeah. and he said suffer the little children to come unto me Right. and as we've been talking only the ones that can come unto him are the elected are all children elected you know just uh, this type of question comes to my mind as sure, we sure. talk about it and I, I just think of um, I, is God the ultimate racist that he would only deal with Israel and only Israel could be saved up until the cross um, you know, so those kinds of things come to my mind or am I just guilty of having a, 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 a mindset that has been tainted by worldview that uh, you know, tries to put God in an as being unfair when ultimately yeah. he is the description of fairness. He is truth. He is the reality. But, yeah. uh, so uh, it's not settled with me yet, I guess, is what the answer is. No, no, that's good, Tom. Thank you. Um, well, let me address two of the issues there. One was the children coming unto Jesus. One of the points, and this is something I learned um, probably about 10 years ago, 
And one, one of the things that always bothered me about that passage, and it didn't bother me in the sense, I, I, what bothered me is I just didn't understand it. What I couldn't understand is how many times in Scripture Jesus would say that unless you come like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And yet in other places, the Scripture clearly ta- calls us to maturity. So what I don't understand is, okay, I, he, we want to be mature Christians in the faith, but yet you have to come as a child. Well, the issue of coming as a child wasn't one where he's saying you have to come with a lack of knowledge. The issue of children in Israel, the big issue that Jesus is playing on is they had no status. Um, how many in here have ever heard of the saying, children should be seen, not heard? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right, exactly. <laughs> Well, that was especially true in Israel. The children had no status. They, they were, um, not that they weren't loved, but they had no status. And so when Jesus says, do not forbid these children to come unto me, what he's playing off of is the fact that they have no status. And when you come to Jesus Christ, in the world's eyes, the believer has no status. Because the Messiah is hated, his people are going to be hated. So what Jesus is doing is he's reminding them, Status isn't the issue. You have to be one who doesn't care about status at all because if you're going to belong to me, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to be crucified and you're all going to be hated. So that's the big issue that he's driving at. So, um, But the other, the other item I wanted to address, Tom, was this idea that God was somehow a racist in the sense that he didn't elect the Gentiles prior to the, the new covenant, the coming of Christ, etc., And I would say that that's also false, and here's why. We see from the very beginning in Genesis 12, 3, for example, that this Abrahamic blessing, the Messiah is going to come from Abraham. In Genesis 12, 3, God says he's going to be a blessing to all the nations. And so the salvific plan from the beginning wasn't just for Jews, but it was for Gentiles as well. In fact, in Romans 1, 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. So it's always for both Jews and Gentiles. And so there's always been one plan of salvation from the beginning, one elect group comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. So in fairness, um, when we think about the issue of fairness, right. let's go back to the idea that none seek after him, no, not one. In Romans 3:10. Um, where Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. The idea that there's none righteous, no, not one. Uh, David himself says in Psalm 51.5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and behold, I was conceived in uh, wickedness. The idea that every single person is born a sinner um, under the wrath of God, unable to come to him, shows that God would be completely fair in sending us all to hell. And that's why Paul cites that he has compassion upon whom he'll have compassion. If God had no compassion and no mercy, then none of us would ever be saved. So, Tom, the way I kind of reconcile that issue in my own mind is that if I were left to my own devices, truth be known, the scriptures reveal that I'd never seek after him. So the only way that I could be saved is that he would sovereignly seek after me. And to me, if I were not of the elect, I would never seek after him. But that's my sin. A good passage to think about is, remember in James, I think it's James 1.14, 1.13, right in there. James says, let no one say that when they're tempted, they're being tempted by God. For God is not evil, the author of evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But people are led away by their own sinful desires. So the point is, the sin in my life, I can't say, well, that's God, you made me that way. No, I'm the one. I'm the one who's the sinner. I'm the one who rejects. 
But if I'm going to be saved, that is God's doing because he enables. And so, again, I think God would be completely fair in sending every person to hell. And who are you and I to say, well, God, because you were merciful to some, therefore you're unjust. Uh, In fact, he'd be just in sending everyone to hell. So to me, that's kind of how I reconcile that issue in my mind. My sin, my condemnation is my fault. And the same with all of you. If you go to hell, it's because of your sin. It's because of your hatred of God. It's because of your rejection of Christ. He didn't make you do that. You were born that way. You were born that way, and you acted upon it. So that, to me, is the issue of fairness in my mind. Um, yes, that God is fair in saving some. Yes, Bob. Well, the verses right after the one that you cited yeah, yeah. say this, but who are you? A mere man to talk back to God. What will the what is form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for, to, for honor and the other for dishonor? Yeah. And what if God, desiring to display His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath, ready for destruction? Yeah. And so, <clears throat> what happens? Okay is that once we do know Christ, rightly so, we want everybody else to as well, which is the way it should be. Yeah, amen. But see, we're looking at fairness from the perspective of the redeemed who have the Spirit and know the joy of Christ and love the things of God. And perhaps, I, in my case, I try not to, forgetting what we were like before. Yeah. If somebody would have told me one day, before I was converted, that within a week, I'd be in a little Pentecostal church singing When the Roll is Called Up Yonder on Sunday night with a lot of people way older than me, because I was only 20, I would have told them they were crazy and I'd rather be dead. Yeah. But as a fact was, that did happen. I was there. I was singing. And those people who were so different than me, yeah. the young baby boomer, and these were the older generation, would actually, with tears, hug me and love me and want that I be so glad I'm part of the family of God. Wow. So me redeemed, thinking that everybody else out there, that every other teenager, 20-year-old in Sheldon, Iowa, wish they were in that church. Yeah. And my answer is zero. And I'm not saying that was the best church. It's just the one that led me to the Lord. So we don't want fairness. We want mercy. Yeah. yeah. And as far as Israel's concerned, as I mentioned last week in the sermon, look at the book of Jonah. Yeah. God yeah, sent Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, who were the disgusting enemies of Israel. And Jonah himself was upset that God saved them. And he actually said, I knew this was going to happen. Yeah. And you know why he knew it? Yeah. Exodus 34. Right. God is a God of mercy. Compassion. He cited what God, what God told Moses on wow. Sinai. Wow. Who shows mercy to many. And, and Jonah knew the only reason God would send him to Nineveh was that he was going to save people there. And Jonah didn't want it. So I see the self-deprecating scriptures that that are in the Old Testament that make a Jewish prophet look bad, Jonah, 
and make the Ninevites look good. Yeah. They repented. Proof of the inspiration of the scripture. Yes. Because if they were just racist, right. they'd portray everything to make themselves look good. Well said. And so the Jewish scriptures show God's compassion for all people. And there are many incidents that demonstrate that, all leading forward to Messiah coming, who would be for unexpected people like children, Gentiles, lepers, centurion commanders who were the oppressors of Israel in their mind. And God saves unexpected people. So what helped me, um, uh, Tom, is I I couldn't see this either until the 80s and I was teaching through the Bible. And when I realized, the thing that helped me was I realized God doesn't owe anybody salvation because we were all his enemies. And that if he saves some, it shows his mercy and reveals his full orb of character qualities. And we need to never let ourselves become like Jonah. We, We can't let that happen to us. Because we're the ones he's sending out to everybody else. Yeah, amen. And if we start thinking us four no more and we're better than everybody, we'll become Jonah. Well said. And actually don't want different people to be saved because we hate them. God forbid that would ever be true. We need to know that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that will keep us from becoming angry (laughs) or racist or any of those things that we shouldn't be. Right. And so it's really, I think it's a real joy. But you asked a very good question. I think everybody asks it. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all do. I know I did. I asked that, and it took me some years to resolve it. You know, Bob, as you were saying that, um, I also thought, I'm sorry, uh, somebody else. Oh, Christy, yeah. Well, I just wanted to um, bring up um, Ruth, who... I was going to just mention that, the Moabite, yes. <laughs> right, was Rahab. not a Jew, yeah. but, um, you know, she said that Naomi's yeah. God would be her God, and so that yes. was an example of how God extended salvation outside of Israel to a Gentile. Yeah. There must have been more. Very good point. I was just thinking of that very thing. Uh, so, Tom, thinking about how God had brought in to the fold, these Gentiles, even like Ruth, the Moabite, she marries Boaz, they end up having a child in the lineage of David. You have Rahab, the spy, Gentile who's brought in. Um, so there's many examples of Gentiles in the old. In fact, one of the great passages, you can read it before you go to bed tonight, read Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, it talks about how, see, if, if you were living in that day, the most cursed person you could be in the Israelites was a Gentile. But then, not only a Gentile, but one who had no, no possibility of ever having children. And one of the people that would fit in that is a eunuch. A eunuch was a man who was castrated. And what was interesting is oftentimes when there was battle, these men would be brought to serve, but they were, they were castrated. And so you couldn't get any more cursed in the Israelite mind than a Gentile eunuch. And yet in Isaiah 56, what God promises is if they would come to faith in him, they're going to be blessed. And so what's interesting is you see the opposite of a racist God. You see a God who's saying, look, I'm willing to extend my mercy to those who are considered the most cursed of all, Gentiles who are far off 
And not only that, but eunuchs themselves. So my point is, all through Scripture, you see that God's salvation isn't just for the Jews. It was for the Gentiles. And that's one of the things that irks God, is that Israel was supposed to be the, the nation of light to the nations, but they fail. And that's why the Messiah ends up being the light that Israel never was. He's the faithful son that Israel never was. And that's, uh, you see that in Isaiah 49 and, and, and other places. So I hope that, yes, Eric, you've got something. Yeah, this is actually kind of related to what Tom is bringing up, too, is that I, I think about, um, you know, everything you guys are saying is, is, is things that I've had to come to and yeah. reconcile, because I had to really struggle with this doctrine of election. Um, and I come back to these covenants, and I come back to Genesis 11, where Nimrod and the, the people were rebelling. Yeah. You know, they had been told, as we all know, they had been told to, to fill the earth, you know. And I think, and I might be wrong on this, but, you know, God was still in communication with people. This was the generation after Noah. But after that Tower of Babel, or Babel, he just placed them all under wrath. He said, okay, I'm done. And, of course, we were all in sin anyway in Adam. Yeah. But God was still working, and, and he was patient. But he said, okay, I'm done, as of the Tower of Babel, and you're all under wrath. But then later on, he chose Abraham. Yeah. Now, why he chose Abraham, I don't know. And I don't know the answer to that. Maybe I'll ask that when I'm in in the hereafter. Sure. You know, not that I have a right to... In other words, that's what God decided to do. Yeah, it's so, a good pleasure. So I think a lot of anti-Jewish hating, there's a lot of Jew hatred in the world, as we know. Um, but so people would try to twist that and say, you know, you, you people have chosen yourselves and you've, you've, you know, created this, all this Old Testament narrative, you know. But as Bob just mentioned, there's plenty of dirt on the, on the Jewish people in the Bible, too. Right. This is the, the Word of God. So I, I don't know why, but for some reason, God chose Abraham right. <laughs> to be the light and his descendants. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if there is one that we can come well up said. with. Well yeah, said. He's, yeah, he's a pagan um, from the area of the Mesopotamia. There's no reason he should be chosen, but he is. You're right, absolutely. Um, the other thing, Tom, just to tag on to this, to me, the, the question boils down to, are humans able or unable to come to Jesus Christ by themselves, by their own power. And some of the passages that I think are absolutely devastating in that regard that show that no human being could ever come to faith are passages like Ephesians 2.1, where we see that we're dead in our transgressions. The death there can't be physical death, otherwise the person couldn't be reading it. And he's talking about the past, the way they were. He's obviously talking about believers who went from spiritual death to spiritual light. In fact, he talks about how he, that God made us alive. So the spiritual death he's referring to obviously infers inability. And a passage to me that's very devastating is Romans 8.8. 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now those who are in the flesh are all those who are outside of Christ. And we see, for example, in Hebrews 11.6 that the only way anyone can be pleasing to God is by faith. So when you put Romans 8.8 8 and Hebrews 11.6 together... What you can infer is those who are outside of Christ don't even have the power to please God. Therefore, they don't have the power to come to faith. And so what I had to wrestle with is, if, is that really what the Bible's teaching? And I think that that's what you have to come to your conclusion. You have to say either the Bible teaches human ability or human inability. 
And once you come to the conclusion, as I did, it's no, human beings are not able to do that. They're not able to come to faith in Christ. Um, Jesus himself said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. He wasn't talking about permission. He was talking about ability in John 6, 44. Once you come to that, then you see that salvation is really miraculous. And um, that's something you have to wrestle with as an individual because you ultimately answer to God and you have to say, look, is that what the Scripture is saying? Is it teaching inability? And if it is, then the only way any of us could be saved is through the power of God. So I, I hope that some of that helps, Tom. Um, do you have any other comments or questions to follow up on that? Or and we got to get a mic to you too, if you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, Carly. <laughs> My name's Tom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you referenced Isaiah fifty-six. Yeah, I believe it was, and. Uh, those eunuchs or those that would come to him would be blessed. Yeah. I wrestle with the come versus called. Versus called. Why yeah. is it to say those who are called will be blessed? Yeah. So that's, I just struggle with yep. which way is it? Yep. So there's many different ways God invites people unto salvation. He'll say, come unto me. Um, Jesus says, all you are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Um, sometimes it's a command. Uh, Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. But in the same way, whether it's a command or it's the invitation, every single human being is commanded and invited by God to participate in messianic salvation through faith in Jesus. Um, remember, Yahweh is the Trinity, and so if someone comes to Yahweh in the Old Testament, they're also coming to Jesus, as it were. They don't know all of that yet and what he's going to do. But the point is they're coming to the same God that you and I believe in. So this invitation in Isaiah 56 is really a genuine one. The one thing that we have to come to, though, I think, is that when this invitation is given, no one can come to him unless he enables it. And so that's what we see. We see no contradiction. Yes, there's a genuine invitation, universal call. All are invited, all are commanded. But left to our own devices, no one would come. And therefore, that's why we need what's called the effectual call. And that's why Jesus says many are called, but few are chosen. You know, yes, the, the, the call goes out to everyone, but it's only those who are unable to believe that will end up coming. So, again, uh, there in, Tom, I, in Isaiah 56, you would see a universal call. And God is extending this mercy and salvation, not just to Israel, but even outside the borders to every Gentile who would come unto him. So I hope that helps. It's a universal calling and an invitation. Yes, Brian. Over the years, you and Bob would occasionally put the circles up on the uh, PowerPoint. Where oh, yeah. It's the realm of uh, Satan and then the realm of Christ. Yeah. And I wanted, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure, but I have one of your uh, if-then logic points. Oh, yeah. And uh, would this be true if you have had a true conversion and gone from the realm of Satan to Christ, then a supernatural event has taken place. And if that's true, then man in his limited capacity has no effect whatsoever on any supernatural event. 
Yeah, that would be a valid hypothetical syllogism. Yeah, absolutely. If you're saved, then it's because of the Spirit, right. the power of the Spirit. Absolutely. And uh, places we see that, remember we had talked about last week out of Matthew, when Jesus talks about the rich man, it's easier for the, the camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, the disciples catch wind of that, and they say, well, then how can anyone be saved? And what does Jesus say? He says, with man it is impossible but with God, all things are possible. You see the same thing in the opening chapter of John, John 1, that people are born not of the will of man, but it's of God, you know, John 1, 13. So all over the scriptures, the scriptures are not silent on this issue. All over the place, you have the inability of man. So if you have inability of man, if you cannot come to faith and you right now are believing in Jesus, what changed? Well, God did a miraculous work. And that's why I left off last week when Jesus says greater miracles than these will you do. If you don't think that salvation is miraculous, you're gonna, you could end up being like these false apostles and prophets who are always trying to gin up supernatural miracles because they don't see that conversion itself as a miracle. So they have to have people's teeth filled with gold and they always have to have some sort of miracle because after all, they, God, Jesus said we're going to do greater miracles the greater miracles that Jesus is referring to were, was conversion. But again, if you believe in human ability, then conversion isn't miraculous. But if we have inability of humanity, then conversion is miraculous. So, when, Tom, when you put the whole scripture together, to me, it's the only thing that made sense to me. I really came to the conclusion that I did not have the ability to come to faith. So, yes, at a point in time, I felt like I was seeking God. But behind the scenes, it was really him seeking me. I really believed in Jesus Christ at a point in time in history. But behind the scenes, from the scriptures, I have to affirm it was the Holy Spirit who enabled me to do it. And so there's no contradiction. I really believed, but it was by the power of the Spirit. So I hope that helps. And, and feel free. And I, don't want, um, I can move on, but if you guys have any more comments or questions on anyone else, yes, back there. Oops, I'm sorry, we got a microphone coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John 20, and John is speaking. He says, now, Je now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John 30, 31, but these are written so that you may come to believe. Yes. That Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, amen. The Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. I mean, that just seems like what you're saying. You might have believed, but you're in the process. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. So when you look at this, the purpose of him writing, and again, if they, they didn't, they couldn't record everything that Jesus did, but the purpose of John writing his gospel is so that we would read and believe. So God uses that as a means. So in other words, the way God saves his elect isn't that his elect are walking down the street one day and all of a sudden a miraculous vision comes upon them. And they just say, I don't know why, but there's some person named Jesus, and I'm going to believe in him. No, he gives us the word. 
So the Holy Spirit enabled me at a point in time to say, you know what, that word is true. That word is for me. I have to believe or I'm going to hell. So the difference between us as believers, the elect, and the unregenerate, many times is not that we have been exposed to the scriptures and they have not. We both had exposure. There's a church on every corner. The, the Bible's in a lot of bookstores. People are culpable. But the difference is when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and enables us, regenerates us, we say that these words are true. These words are for me. These words are eternal life. And that's the big change in our lives. Um, for many years, I went to a church and I heard these words and it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't believe. I thought it was fairy tales. No, nothing different than the tooth fairy or Santa Claus. And that's all it was to me. But after I saw an airplane crash, God got my attention saying, you know, you're, you're young, you're 19, but you aren't going to live forever. That's what it meant to me, that experience. I just said, wow, I, he got my attention. And I wanted to know what was true. But this all the while, and behind the scenes, God is using these things providentially to bring one of his elect into the fold. Well, at a point in time, I'm exposed to the gospel through the scriptures, and I'm brought to faith. And that's why it says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the word of Christ is absolutely essential, the scriptures, in bringing people to salvation. But people will not believe it unless the Holy Spirit enables them to. So absolutely, the scriptures are essential, and that's why we send out missionaries. That's why um, when you support missionaries abroad or here, it's so essential. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So well said, very good comment. Thank you for bringing us back to that, that, that fact of the universal call. So, well, with that, anybody else? Um, any comments or questions? I'm sorry, yeah, Tom. Lest there be a doubt, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Amen. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. That as the Son of God, He is God. That He died on the cross, that He was buried, and He rose again. And that my salvation rests in Him. Amen. I am uh, encouraged with it was Bob's direction of about three weeks ago here where we were addressing demons and demon influence and the uh, response and the encouragement to us was not to get wrapped up in that but to look at Christ yeah and in this whole issue of what we've been discussing this morning for me the issue is Christ yes how I got there whatever I think that we can't totally understand that but God has brought us to the point that we can believe in him. It Amen. is the word of God that is alive and powerful. Yes. And uh, so praise him. Yeah, amen. Well said, Tom. That's very well said. And that's something, you're right, um, with Arminians and Calvinists, those who uh, believe in the doctrine of election and those who would reject uh, that doctrine, there, there can be unification on what we call the universal call, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the gospel, that salvation is through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. We can have um, com- compatibility there on those things and, co- and commonality. Um, amen. That's well said. Yep. Uh, yeah. I, I just want to add to what you said. We either have to uh, wrestle uh, or we do have to wrestle with uh, either God uh, enables us or man has ability, you know, uh, yeah. uh, 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 to to choose salvation. I think uh, 
Another way to say that is we have to wrestle with the scriptures and do they say is God is sovereign in all things or not? You know, right. you, you know, and uh, is he omnipotent and all powerful and sovereign in all things that that includes ability. And, and as far as for me, when I came to that realization, an all powerful, all sovereign God is just way more worthy to be worshipped than yeah. a God who is not sovereign in all things. Yeah. Amen. And if we think we chose, we're robbing some of God's glory from him. That's right. So it's does do the scriptures teach an all powerful, sovereign God in all things or not? That's right. You Amen. Know? Yeah. That's well said, Mike. You're right. Um, that to me is the issue. The issue is about the glory of God. Does he receive all glory or did I have something to contribute? Even if it was small, did I have something to contribute to salvation? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Let's, take a, let's just stop there for a moment. The that is a demonstrative pronoun. To, which, to what is that referring to? Well, when I've done my research, the that refers to salvation by faith through grace. So that isn't of myself. Well, part of that is faith. What Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is teaching is that faith is not of myself, but it's a gift of God. So because I come to that conclusion, he gets all the glory. And that's why we say if we don't get this right, it's an attack on one of the solas of the Reformation. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, but it's all for his glory alone. And Mike, you're absolutely right. When we say, no, you know, I had a little something. You know, I may have been a sinner, but I reached up my hand or I did this. I'm taking a little glory for myself. But when you realize, again, let me go back to there's two analogies. The Arminian conception of salvation is there's a shipwreck and people are in the water. They're drowning. They're flailing. And whoever will reach up, Jesus Christ comes by in the lifeboat and he pulls them in. But what I think the scriptures are teaching, instead, there's been a shipwreck, and everyone who's in the water is already drowned. They're dead. That's why he says in Ephesians 2.1 that we were dead in our transgressions. So there's no one that can raise their hand up for the lifeboat. Jesus comes by in the lifeboat, and he sovereignly pulls us in a lifeless body and breathes life into us. That's the conception of salvation. It's all of him. I contribute nothing to it. And I think you're absolutely right. That's exactly. And by the way, let me just say this. We can have fellowship with others who disagree on this. Just as I can have fellowship with others who may have a different position in eschatology. But at the same time, I'm responsible for saying, this is what the scriptures say. And when it comes to, for example, eschatology, a lot of people in this postmodern age, they'll say, well, whether you're premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, who can really know? What I'm saying is this. Did God really muddle it? If we as evangelicals believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, meaning the clarity of Scripture, do we really believe that? And when it comes to the end, did God just muddle it and say, well, who can know? What I'm saying is no, we can know. And when it comes to this issue, I think we can clearly know that human beings do not have the power in of themselves to believe. And to believe otherwise, I think is, rightly said, Mike, an attack on the glory of God. He does it all. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> but yes, we can have fellowship with those who can dis- who disagree. Yeah, so um, anybody else? Uh, Marilyn, do you have a comment or question? Just a quick comment. Yeah. I, I think the tendency would be for those who are strong with the election to, well, b- why bother to pray? But I've always believed in prayer. And yes. we can 
pray that God would intervene, you know, that God would bring about, even if it has to be something like Paul's conversion, you know, what nothing's impossible with God. So it should spur us all on to really be praying for one of those that don't know the Lord. Well said, Marilyn. That, that's so well said. You know, um, the thought that I have a 10-year-old boy, and I know you have kids, and most of you in here have had kids or will have kids at some point, or you're a child. Parents worry about their kids. You really do. You want to see nothing more than them going into the kingdom. But what gives me great comfort is not believing in human ability, but believing in the ability of God. And that ties in very nicely to our prayer life. When I know that salvation is only of God, one of the greatest things I can do is to bring... The old saying is not only do we have to bring God before the man, giving them the scriptures, but we have to bring the man before God in prayer, knowing that God is the one who regenerates. And um, absolutely, I can confidently say that it gives me comfort to put my son in the hands of God who's all-sovereign rather than putting his salvation in his ability. And so I think that prayer and believing in the doctrine of election go hand in hand. If we know that God is really omnipotent and sovereign over all things, including even salvation, that should drive us all more to the throne of grace, as it says in Hebrews 4.16, where we find help in our time of need. So well said, Marilyn. Very, very good. Yes, uh, Eric. I'm sorry, Carly, you've got to get a workout today. <laughs> I'm sorry, oh, we're over here. No, that's all right. I'm dropping the ball there. I was just thinking about uh, God's sovereignty and also uh, situations like Hezekiah where he says to him, you know, you're going to die. And Hezekiah starts weeping and he said, you know, Lord, look at what my life, you know, what I've done. And God says, because I saw your tears and heard your prayer, I'll give you 15 years. But yeah, just that kind of tying in with uh, predestination. Yeah. I, I, one of the ways I think of them is uh, Solomon. When, when God heard Solomon's prayer, he says, because you didn't ask for wealth or you didn't ask for... Uh, long life for the death of your enemies, but you ask for wisdom, um, then I'm going, I'm, he's so pleased with him, he said, I'm going to give you these other things, or, or some of them, and wisdom. And one of the things that came into my mind when I read that was <clears throat> that uh, Saul of himself can't ask a good, anything good. We can't, we don't even have it in our heart to, you know, we're dead. <laughs> Saul can't do something good to please God, but... <clears throat> But um, God, he can put things in our heart. And so I believe it was God's thought in Saul's heart, but I believe God's showing us kind of the difference between God's sovereignty, but also he's, you know, we, I can't understand it all, but but it's like God put this ability for Saul to do this, but he also commends Saul for doing it and not choosing what Saul also could have done. And I think it kind of shows, yes, it's all glory to God because Saul didn't have the ability to ask, you know, a good thing because God says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So God gave him that ability, but he also, you know, gave him the ability to sin. Yeah, yeah, so let's, do, let's just talk about that interplay. So there's, it seems as if God, perhaps with Hezekiah, let's use him, that he has this change of mind, let's say. And he says, no, I'm going to give you another 15 years. But what we have to affirm is God knows all things. He knew from his perspective, that he was going to live that additional 15 years. So let me try to put this together with another example. Do you remember Abraham? He believed God. 
in Genesis 15.6, and it's credited to him as righteousness. Well, in Genesis 22, Abraham is put to the test. Will he sacrifice his son, his only son? By the way, this is the son from whom the Messiah is going to come. Well, do you remember Abraham is willing to do so? But he also demonstrates faith that God will even raise the dead. He says in Genesis 22, 5 to his servants, you stay here, me and the lad are going to sacrifice, but we, plural, are going to return. Well, how does he know that? How does he know that we are going to return? Because after all, he has to sacrifice his son, his only son. Well, he knew that because this is the promised son, God would even have to raise him from the dead. And the writer of Hebrews makes that point in Hebrews chapter 11. But let's put that together. God knows that Abraham believes Genesis 15, 6 has credited him as righteousness. So why does he have to test him in Genesis 22 to see if he really believes? Because remember in Genesis 22, he says, I know now that, you know, through your obedience that you really believe. Well, the issue isn't that God doesn't know. The issue is that from the human perspective, we don't always know. So in other words, God knows that Abraham believes. He really does put him to the test, and Abraham really does act on it. He acts on what he really believes. But if, in fact, Abraham changed God's mind or informed God's mind by what he did in Genesis 22, then why does Paul say that Abraham was justified the moment he believed in Genesis 15.6? In other words, in Genesis 15.6, when Abraham believed, God knew his heart. He knew that he belonged to him. And so he wasn't surprised. So my point in saying this is a lot of this is unfolded for humans to understand. When it says that God measured out the universe with the span of his hand, do you know there was a false teacher named Copeland who said that that must infer that God has a nine-inch hand span? Well, no, that's what's called an anthropomorphism, that God is so powerful that he can create the whole universe. But if you take it literally to the point where God has a hand, then you're going to be making an error. In the same way where it says that God changed his mind or he learned something, these are what are called anthropomorphisms so that you and I can understand what God is saying. But we have to affirm, like with Hezekiah, God knew from the beginning because he knows all things that Hezekiah was going to live those additional 15 years. But in the interplay between God and man, it's revealed for our sake. Uh, So I just want to make that clear, that God is sovereign and there's there's no incompatibility between his sovereignty and these passages and interactions with human beings. So, uh, yes, uh, Norm. Uh, yeah, personally, I've, I've struggled over the years with the same idea that s- salvation is all of God and we don't contribute anything to yeah. it. Once I, once I accepted that, then the question came to mind, okay, if it's all of God, then why do we need to pray why do we need to send missionaries? Why do we need to do these things? Yeah. And that's when I was introduced to the idea of God uses means to accomplish his purposes, and some of those means are prayers and evangelism and those things. So that right. was the, the last piece I had to put in place to complete this. Excellent answer to that question. Um, and you're, you're right. God uses means. He uses tools. He elects. He's, he saves but he uses the word, he uses the prayers of the saints, he uses the sending them out. Paul talks about that in Romans 10. How will they hear unless they are sent and, or, or they preach? And how will they preach unless they are, someone sends them? Blessed are the feet of those who bring good tidings. You know, that's all in Romans 10. Absolutely, those are essential. You know, you reminded me as you said that there was a great uh, story that R.C. Sproul uh, told some years ago. 
He was in seminary as a young man, and the question came up in seminary, if God is sovereign and he saves, and he does all those things in his sovereign ability, then why should we pray? And there was silence in the seminary classroom, and sheepishly, R.C. said that he raised his hand. And the professor called on him, and he said, well, perhaps because God commanded us? And the professor had a heyday with that. He says, oh, R.C., that's right. If the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who commanded all things, and they leapt into existence, if he commanded you to do something, what a small thing that you would obey him, right? And uh, he just showed the folly of saying, yeah, well, maybe it's because we, uh, we really do have to obey him. And the, the, the folly I'm talking about is it's folly on the human side to say, well, that doesn't really matter. But yes, being obedient, we're to pray without ceasing, Paul says. That doesn't mean every second of the day, but the idea is that we're never to forsake it. Just as we never forsake the assembling together, that doesn't mean we do it every day or every hour, but we're to do it. We're to be dedicated to those things. We're to be dedicated to the means of grace. We're to be about his commands. Absolutely. That's why Bob and I have taken on those who have different commands, sanctification through different means, uh, through, through journaling. There's nothing wrong with journaling, but as soon as you say, well, something, this is going to make me more holy, or through labyrinth walking, or whatever it may be, where are the commands from God for that? But God has commanded that we would pray, that we would not forsake the assembling together, that we'd be engaged in the Lord's prayer. As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, implied you will do this. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, he commands us to preach the word in season and out of season. So, yes, we have to obey the commands of the Lord, and he will use those things sovereignly to save. So, yeah, well said, Norm. All right, anybody else? Well, as you can see, this is a great introduction to the book of Joel, isn't it? <laughs> I, I promise we'll come to it. I'm go- yeah. Oh, okay. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Did you hear Christy? Uh, Christy said, if you haven't written on your handout, feel free to leave it on the table, and then she'll just bring it back. Um, but if you have written on it, just go ahead and hold on to it to yourself and then and bring it back next time. Bob will be in Sunday school. Next week we're going to continue on talking about our biblical worldview and the divine council. Uh, and today he's going to be teaching on Ephesians. So in a couple of weeks, when Bob gets done with Sunday school, we'll come back to this introduction to Joel. And we'll, we'll start that book. Uh, just let me just say this about the book of Joel. One of the things I'm excited to teach about it is it talks about the day of the Lord, number one. It's a huge concept that I think most Christians aren't really exposed to from the Old Testament into the New. The second is I'm really excited to wrestle with in what way at Pentecost, remember when Peter says this is fulfillment of Joel 2.28, that God would pour out his spirit on all mankind? That's from Joel. And we're going to wrestle with this promise of the pouring out of the Spirit. And what you're going to see, I think, in the book of Joel, you're going to start to learn how prophecy functions in the Old Testament. That oftentimes when it comes to prophetic word from the old to the new, there's both a near-term fulfillment, but it's always a guarantee of the far-term fulfillment. So you're going to see a day of the Lord in Joel's day, is a foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord when Jesus Christ returns to subdue his enemies and to bring our kingdom. What happens in Joel's day is a foreshadowing of that, yet Joel does see and does write about the ultimate day of the Lord. 
So the book of Joel is going to talk a lot about the covenant faithfulness of God. It's going to talk about the need for repentance, the need to turn from sin in every generation. So we're going to put a lot of things together, I think, by reading this, this minor uh, prophet. And by the way, minor prophet does not mean insignificant. Exactly. Uh, minor prophet comes just simply because the 12 minor prophets are smaller, they're shorter books than the major prophets. In fact, if you took the average English Bible, and I don't know what size that is, but the longest minor prophet is Hosea. In the average English Bible, it takes up 14 pages. The shortest major prophet is Daniel. That takes up 24 pages. But the longest major prophet is Jeremiah. And in the average English Bible, that's 97 pages. So the reason the minor prophets are called the minor prophets isn't because they're insignificant. It's just simply because they're shorter. By the way, the Jews refer to the 12 books as the book of the 12. That's the minor prophets. So typically we as evangelicals, Christians, we refer to the book of Joel and other minor prophets as minor prophets. But if you look at the Jewish canon, they'll refer to it as the book of the 12. Same material, just referred to differently. Okay? So with that, I'll uh, be quiet and I'll, I'll pray and then I'll let you guys go here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have enabled us as a body to wrestle with these great doctrines of the faith. I pray for each one here that we would be those who acquiesce to your scriptures and your truth, uh, that we would continue to love uh, one another and you by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.